Good evening, welcome to the episode of the Big Issues Podcast, I am Dowd Khan, and in this episode we will be talking about the history of the Labour Party. We will be talking about the leaders from Clement Attlee all the way to Jeremy Corbyn. We won't be doing Keir Starmer because Keir Starmer is still the leader of the party. We're going to look at this and we're doing this from a historical perspective. So we're going to be looking at the leaders of the Labour Party. And I can see my sound bars are actually going up compared to last week. So that's very good. Um, so let's begin. James will do all the questions on Attlee. I will do the questions on, actually no, I'll do the questions that way, James can do gate skill, and we'll just go like that and see how it goes. Uh, we're going to aim for about two hours, it could go a little bit over, could go a little bit under, but hum-ho, this is a comprehensive episode like all of our episodes are. Right, let's begin. So, Atley. One minute. No. Notes are still there, fucking hell. Right. So go on, how on earth, James, did Clement Attlee, the MP for Limehouse, the Deputy Prime Minister under Winston Churchill, how on earth did Clement Attlee become uh, Prime Minister in 1945 for the Labour Party? Um, I, think, I, I, I think the main reason why Attlee became with Churchill was because the British public didn't see a Conservative government leading them to rebuild the country. Um, when uh, after after World War Two, uh, the, uh, the Conservative government weren't using they weren't going against weren't using banking on the fact that we had Churchill who won us the war. Mm. What they were saying was the Labour Party, like the Gestapo. So and the British public were thinking we're not stupid. We know we're not we're not the, the Gestapo. And I think the Conservatives attacked the Labour Party too much that it became became almost a toxic culture where they wouldn't vote for the Conservatives because they just felt like they're just going to attack somebody from being a member of the Gestapo who might be a bit left-wing. Well, then everybody's a member of the Gestapo. Well, I mean, during, during this time, Ali had proved himself he was Deputy PM during during uh, World War II. Yeah. He was, um, he, uh, and, he, and, he did, and he did bring many things. I mean, his manifesto was clearly stronger than Churchill. His... Um, his ideas were probably people would argue more radical and more and more we, and more likely to rebuild the country. There's nothing. There's nothing in um, the Conservative manifesto for you know uh, free healthcare for you know the people being injured at war. There's nothing in the Conservative manifesto for free healthcare for anybody. But it was in. It wasn't the Labour Party manifesto, and, and and people could and people could see you know they shouldn't. People are coming back from war, you know, and people whose houses have been destroyed and they're injured because of the war shouldn't be having to. I know it was, it was kind of free at that time, but you know what I mean? Still, still shouldn't be having to pay the private sector kind of thing. And and they got rid of it, which people people were very, very much in favour for. Yeah. So I think, I think that's the main reason why Churchill got beaten, was because he compared them to the Gestapo, and he didn't have a strong, he didn't have a strong campaign of what he should have done. He didn't take advantage of what he should have taken advantage of. And you can see in there, which we'll presumably come, come, on, uh, come to later, we can see that he did take advantage um of it in the nineteen fifty one election, the nineteen fifty election, yeah. which did which did give him the seat. Well, I think the reason that Churchill won in nineteen fifty one was because Churchill had modernised the Conservative Party. He'd taken the mm. party under people like Rab Butler and Anthony Eden back to some form of centrism. So I think that's the main reason he won in nineteen fifty one. I don't think it was himself. Oh, where's my camera? I'm turning off. I don't think it was himself. I think it was because 
he had successfully taken the Tories back to the centre ground, and that's why he did uh, very well in 1951. But do you think the ideas of Attlee in that election, of things like the NHS, unemployment benefit, child benefit, the creating of the post-war uh, settlements came to known as the welfare state, do you think these were the ideas that helped him win? Um. I, I absolutely do think those were the ideas that helped him win. Um, I don't see a situation where the Conservatives and the Labour Party could campaign for the same thing and the Labour Party would win in that situation. The Conservative, uh, the Labour Party were absolutely way ahead of the Conservatives at this time when it comes to, which, when it came to rebuilding the UK. Uh, after all, I mean, many things were destroyed. St Paul's Cathedral was destroyed. The Houses of the Parliament were destroyed during, during the Blitz. And all these huge infrastructure was destroyed. Our factories were destroyed. Many things were destroyed over the Blitz. And we didn't... And the Conservatives didn't really outline a policy to, to, to fix it. The Labour Party did. And that was an absolutely huge reason to why they actually gave it. Well, I agree with that. I do think so. I think the, the boldness of the ideas in 1945 were really were creating a sort of a new settlement for the party and created a post-war consensus that people had to live by and that's why you saw the industrial charter of 47 which forced the Tory party at least to return some form of sanity within policies but let's move on to about so was he in your view the most would you think he was the most transformative prime minister you know it's always said that Clem Attlee and Margaret Thatcher were two of Britain's most transformative prime ministers but was yeah. Attlee the, one of the most transformative okay well there's two ways. I would say that, I would definitely say that um, Clement Attlee and Margaret Thatcher were probably one of the two most transformative prime ministers in history. Clement Attlee for the better, Margaret Thatcher for the worse. Uh, I think, uh, I believe that Clement Attlee, when, when he entered, when he entered, uh, he, he had basically a destroyed economy, a destroyed Britain, and a destroyed morale. Um, when, when he left, when he left, he had, had a re he had he was going onto the road of rebuilding Britain. Mm -hmm. He 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 put it on the track of the NHS that we talked about. Most of that is one of the main things that he and Bevan introduced. Um, he also introduced um, different educational programs as well. All, all these major things that he that that he put forward really did help rebuild the uh, rebuild Britain. And I think the way when he came when he came into where he actually exited as PM um, was such a such a completely different Britain to post-war Britain or you know pre-war Britain. It was it was a completely different country. It modernised. It was it, it it was no longer stuck in the lines of you know we'll just do this because because this is a consensus. Clement Attlee broke the consensus, and then the yeah. Conservatives when when they came to uh, when they came to when they came into power, they carried on Clement Attlee's policies. And then they had this period of consensus politics, which was basically just Clement Attlee's policies from the 1940s, uh, the, the, late, the late 1940s onwards. Those were basically Clement Attlee, because nobody touched the NHS. People agreed on all of these things. There were a few differences when it came to you know, how to get these things, how to fund them for. But all the, all the major party and the political policies that the Conservatives and the Labour Party introduced between the period of 1945 to 1975, were all just basically Clement Attlee's policies, just kept on going and going and going and going, and I think that's a major, and I think that just shows not how much it changed in terms. Nobody, nobody carried on Chamberlain's policies. Nobody carried on a, nobody carried on a, in a, um, 
uh, anybody else's policy. They just carried on Atlee's because Atlee's was the correct policy. So I think I think that just proves to show how much how much change he brought in, how much change for good he brought in. When it comes to Margaret Thatcher, you see the change which you just compared to that has been the two biggest transforms. Nobody really carried on Margaret Thatcher's policies. Not 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 even not even not even her chancellor. It, the second the second she left, they never really carried on her policies. They changed tax. They changed thing. I mean, for crying out loud, she, she, she was an avid believer in the EU. Obviously, not the single market joining the market, the EU, but she was a believer in the EU itself. And the Conservative Party, about twenty years later, left the EU. So it so it so it comes down to it com- it comes down to the point of people would still respect the NHS and athlete thing. People still re- uh, still respect educational reform and that thing. Still, people still respect tax uh, tax cuts and not tax cuts, but you know, uh, you know, making sure the tax are fair and that thing. So, Atlee really did, really did change the country from what it from what it is, what it was to what it is now today. Well, I agree with that. Of course, I agree with that. I think that the post-war, as I read it, the post-war Keynesian collectivist consensus which I think Clement Attlee had a huge part in forming, was, on the large part, very good. You saw things like the NHS, you saw state schools, you saw unemployment and it come out. And these were radical policies that made lives better. But something people don't know about Clement Attlee was he was a wartime prime minister, that Attlee, during the, he had the Korean War to serve under. Okay, Harry Truman started it, but he was a wartime prime minister. So how do you think he was as a wartime prime minister? Well... It, it was quite interesting because um, he was. I would argue that he was twice uh, for twi- twice, twice, two terms as deputy prime, one term deputy prime minister, one term prime minister, and both of those he was in. A, he was in a huge conflict. The Queen War obviously less so, but what, what what people fail to understand is that the Queen War was such a big war. More people died in the Korean War than all other wars of the tw- of the the rest of the wars in the 20th century combined. And and into the twenty first century combined, that's how many people died in the Korean War, and uh, and, and people gloss over the fact of how big of a war it was. Um, it was huge planning operations. You put, you take it from the other side of the globe, whilst that empire was disbanding and leaving at a massive rate, and it it generally just goes to show of the planning capability that they had, and uh, and he was he was a brilliant. Obviously, it ended up in a stalemate, but that is because. You know, the Russians and the Chinese backed the, uh, backed the North and we backed the South. And when, and when it comes to all of these, when it comes to, you know, was Atlee the best person? I mean, I don't see Churchill, uh, uh, well, I do see Churchill being able to do it, but Churchill wasn't going to be elected during this time. And I think Atlee was at the time the best person to deal with the Korean War. And I think, and I think Churchill, he was very good at planning close wars when it came to you know d-day when it came to you know coming up through the bottom of italy as he would refer to the soft thunderbelly but but when but but when it came to like you know wars abroad he lost singapore he lost he was about to lose hong kong he was losing numbers and numbers and numbers and numbers of faraway territories australia at the brink of threat of being this obviously we didn't have australia at the time but australia at the brink of threat of being taken over by japan as well so it come so it came to the point of Churchill was good at close combat. Uh, Attlee was amazing when it came to fighting uh, really far away wars. And and it just goes to show in the Korean War how good he was. 
Well, well, what? Let's talk about the biggest policy of the at the years. I think everyone agrees this was the biggest policy at the years, the National Health Service. So, in your view, how big was the creation of the of the NHS was to the surmounting of the like of the legacy of the 1945-51 Labour government? Was the NHS, as it were, the jewel in Atlee's crown? It, I believe it absolutely was. Yeah. I mean, nobody. Um, I mean, with, when people talk about Atlee and Bevan, they don't. They, they don't go. Oh, you know, the Korean War. They don't go. Oh, yeah, the fact the fact that they helped. Uh, they helped in World War Two. They go NHS, and and it's still to that day. The NHS is fundamentally a Labour Party thing. Yeah, and and you can see it. You can see it, and you can see it. Not the loyalty to the NHS gives. Yeah, not a Tory party institution, no, no. because in 1945, the Tory party supported privatised hospitals, it supported freestanding, ch- charging hospitals that would actually make people pay for care, and it was the Labour Party in 1945 that came up for the National Health Service. Just going to, you know, yeah. leave that on the record so everybody knows. That was our thing. Yeah. It was our thing. But... And, and you can see that to today. The Labour Party fund much more than then. Obviously, it reminds COVID, which yeah. gave unprecedented funding to the NHS. Right. It reminds us from that. The Labour Party gave so much more funding to the NHS than the Conservatives ever would have done. Or dream and, of and, and, in, and, and in turn, and in turn when, when it comes to the Labour Party, they get a lot less, you know, not, not strikes, but threatening the strikes and union action to, by the NHS as the Labour Party government and the Conservative Party government, because we show the loyalty to each other, you know? We help, we introduced you, we're going to keep you afloat. That's, yeah, that, that, it is that, a good that. point to know that, it's a good point to know that the British Medical Association did oppose the creation of the NHS, as did most doctors. So, you know, I mean, famously, Tony Blair goes, what was it? Yes, Foundation Hospitals are opposed by the Tories, the Lib Dems, and the British Medical Association, and the Royal College of Nursing. Are we not a progressive party? Because if we listen to those that lot of idiots, we've never had an NHS in the first place. Yeah, true. And you could but, look at um, the example. No, because this is where you know any of the doctors having a good whine about the NHS. I say this to mine. Under Labour, you had a, a, an assist. Each nurse had an assistant. They had someone to, to work with the patients. They had three people on the desk. They had someone to help with the bookings. They had, uh, you know, ten people in the operating theatre. They got all the new equipment. And those fuckers still whined about the NHS. They still say it was crap. Even though 91% of the British public said the NHS was absolutely amazing, the BMA was still having a jolly good whine about everything was dreadful. So, you know, I don't take their criticisms too seriously. Yeah, but I mean, when it comes back to the NHS, was an absolute was definitely the crown. <laughs> I was uh, going to have a crowning about the BMA, but go, keep going, keep going. <laughs> was that definitely a jewel in the crown of um, yes. of Atlee's, Atlee's premiership? And I don't think um, anybody's ever anywhere near to what NHS has provided for Britain. I mean, I I, I would say I would say it's a it's a crown. It's a jewel in the crown of British politics as a whole. Never mind that yeah. premiership. I don't see. I don't see any other. I don't see any other policy throughout history. Yeah, maybe yeah, except from you know, yeah, you know the Victorian era where they introduced school uh, free schools to children. Yeah, but even I don't see NHS... any other situation where the NHS has been or anything that could match what the NHS has produced. Well, I can tell you, the German healthcare system couldn't is better than the NHS most days. Germany's healthcare system is better 
more efficient, more cheaper, and free at the point of use for every German citizen, and it has better access to healthcare, quicker access to healthcare, and is much better than the NHS. That's just a fact. The only time the NHS has been better than, than any country is under a Labour government. Yeah. But the NHS uh, is most of the time pretty shit. It's just the the thing we all love about it is that it's free. And anyone says it's not. Anyone who says what's the alternative? We all then all us lefties. Anyone who says let's have the alternative, we shout ah! You want to take us to America, do you? Ah! With their five thousand dollar doctor bills and the three thousand dollar ambulance costs, you you want to see pensioners suffer? Oh, you bastard! But I think we do need to look at the recentralization of the NHS and to put more, much more money into it, but also to take out the private structure, the private funding, and to make it a totally free public service. Otherwise, because if these heartless, heartless bastards get their hands on it anymore, it's finished. But then, yeah. there is, of course, that book by uh, Nicholas Timmins. The, is it Nicholas Timmins? The Five Social Services or something? I'll get the clip up later where he goes, mm. there has not been a year since the NHS was created, where at every winter someone would say, now it's going to collapse. Yeah, <laughs> and, he, true. and he goes, it never does. So what's the whining about? <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. But no, I think the NHS is still one of the greatest institutions this country yeah. has. It's one of the best. It, it promotes a civilising principle that every single person should be entitled to healthcare free of charge. And I think any government that was to ever destroy it, uh, like these incompetent fuckers are right now, will be condemned to a hundred years out of power. I agree. Or a generation, to be more realistic. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 25 years. <laughs> we'll give them that. <laughs> Anyways, so after World War Two, and Atlee, of course, won in, in 1945 the election... How do you think his re-industrialization re policy was? You know, the renationalization of the water industry, electricity industry, the gas, the steel, the railways, the buses, that this mass sort of renationalization effort. Do you think that was the right policy, the wrong policy? Could we have done it in a better way? What do you think overall about reindustrialization? I think the reindustrialization was an absolute brilliant idea yeah. at the time. Um, I don't think it would work now. Because of you know people who got used you know because there's more to this capitalist society where it's a free market. But back then, after a war, you you would you would want you want you trust your government. They just they just won a war for you. They've they've saved you from you know the hands of German aggression or you know the hands of Japanese uh, aggression or, and all of this. So they've saved you from this. So you're going to trust the government, especially the person technically second second in command of the government at the time. You're going to trust them to 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 you know take control of the things that you take for granted i mean in this country we take for granted that we have the bus service we take for granted that we have you know transportation we take for granted that we have energy electricity and water but um mm. back back in the 1945 it was all destroyed Correct. because because of, the, because of the germans and and i believe completely that um that if the government the government couldn't have handed this to the private sector the government yeah. absolutely had to take this into public hands, and the and the public absolutely agreed with them. The public understood that, and the public continued to, and as I say, you know, strengthen its uh, its support in the government, and and the strength and the strong support the government had at the time, the amount of trust 
has never ever been higher than back, you know, uh, post World War Two or during World War Two, and mm. British history, I don't believe, because I mean, you you have to trust your government at this point, yeah. and people did, and on the record, it got them, it, it got them to one of the most successful, um, successful um, rebuilding processes in history. But I mean, the issue is that I would argue is that rationing was still a was still a thing. You still had to still had to ration, you know. Uh, uh, pl- plenty of items. My grand, my granddad, um, my granddad who grew up just, uh, who was born during World War Two, and then and then lived throughout the rationing period of it. When he, he said when he was when he was seven years old, he was seven years old. He, he still remembered after World War Two was five years gone. Still, he still remembered going to the shop and asking for um, asking for sweets and had to and had to produce his ration book for bits of sugar was still rationing and all and all of this fish was still being rationed and all of this because because the government. I feel like aptly focus on the correct things, getting electricity, getting water, getting uh, getting energy, and all of this were the correct things to focus on. But I think he should have also put more focus into um, into ending rationing for everybody. Because I believe that was a major attacking point that Churchill did oh, on massive. athlete was massive. rationing was still a thing. And, and I, I think and I think if, if if and if and if we got rid of it, yeah. I feel like. To be fair, I think he had the resources to do so. And I think he did. I, th- I think he was trying to keep down the costs so the Conservative couldn't shout at him for spending too much. But in turn, that left him to the most to the most to him being attacked anyway. So it was a loser situation, yes. probably, I believe. Well, I think with the rationing, the fact that the Tories got rid of it in 1954, Major Willem Lloyd George got rid of it in 1954, and that was a huge vote winner for the Conservatives because of the Christmas of 54. But then we could also say that, you know, the Tories had the, the, the 52 World Trade exports reduced increase, and then, of course, the trade standards got up, which allowed prices to come falling down. So that they were good factors for them, but I think that the ending of rationing was certainly... Um, a huge yeah. a boost for the Conservative Party in 1955, when Anthony Eden, of course, increased the majority from 17 to 60. Yeah, I agree. Why am I so, so um, fucking low? Sorry? They're so low. The bars have gone back to being so low again. Alright. So, should we move on to Hugh Gatesville? Yeah, next week I'm just going to record them on Zoom. No, well. Yeah, go on then. Right, so, so Hugh Gateskill was the leader after, um, after he lost in 1951, uh, I believe Atlee resigned. Yeah, no, um, no, 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 no. So, 55, and 55, 55. 55, 55, 55, 55. After 55, he resigned. Yeah. Um, and, and he gave, and, he, and then he got, he got replaced by Hugh Gateskill. He did. Now, was it, now, was Gateskill over Bevan the right decision for the Labour Party at the time? No. Nope. Or, would, or would it have been, or would it have been, you know, um, or should have Bevan taken over for yes. the success of the NHS to build up on that? Yep. Nye Bevan was the most brilliant politician the Labour Party had ever given us. That is just a fact. Nye Bevan was the man who gave us the NHS. Nye Bevan was the man who resigned from the government because uh, Attlee wanted to put prescription charges in to fund defence expenditure. Nye Bevan was the most principled politician ever in British politics. But, but... Hugh Gateskill was one of the most competent politicians in British politics in the 50s, by a mile. Uh, one of the best chancellors, one of the most fiscally prudent people. But I do believe that Aniron Bevan's vision could have won Labour in 1959, easily. Okay, that, that, I, I completely agree with that. Um, so also, um, 
was his desire not to raise tax cuts, uh, uh, not to raise taxes, sorry, but also to increase public expenditure. Expenditure. The reason he lost. I'll put some nine on for you. I'll put some nine bevan on for you. Nine bevan fifty-nine. This is him after the nine. This is after the nineteen fifty-nine election defeat when Gates Gold Course wants to remove Clause Four from the Constitution, and here's what Nine had to say about that. What message are we going to send to the rest of the world? Are we going to send the message from the great labor movement, which is the mother and father of modern democracy and of modern socialism, that we in Blackpool in 1959 are going to turn our backs on our principles because of the temporary unpopularity in a temporary affluent society? When we realize that all the tides of history are flowing in our direction, that we are not beaten, that we represent the future. Then when we say it and mean it, we shall lead our people to where they deserve to be led. He, he, he was a rousing orator in Iron Bevan. I mean, he's the man who famously said, the no form of artificial or social seduction can ever stop my burning hatred for the conservative parties. I believe that they are lower than vermin. Uh, well, he, he may be right about that, quite frankly, with these band of fools. Uh, but no, I think Bevan could have won in 59, mainly because Bevan, I think, on the ideas, was a much better politician, politician than Gateskill. But Gateskill was the more pragmatic politician. Margaret Thatcher famously said Hugh Gateskill was the best Labour politician since in history. She was uh, Gateskill was one of her favourites, partly because Gateskill was on the right of the party, but Bevan could have uh, changed Britain for the better because he would have won in 59 in my view. So do you, so do you, do you think the reason Gateskill lost was his desire not to raise taxes but also to increase public expenditure? Yeah. Well, first of all, he couldn't really raise taxes because taxes were so bloody high. You know, this is a time when the top rate of tax reached like 95, 96, 97%. But it's a simple fiscal rule. You cannot go into an election promising more spending without some form of revenue. You can't. It's well, impossible. Let's trust it, that pretty well. Yeah, and the pound's <laughs> tanked. Our economy is a joke and we're in a recession and we're borrowing $200 billion a year because of that stupid woman who's basically just a bimbo with no intelligence whatsoever. <laughs> All right, so... Her and Kami Kwasi have literally destroyed our economy. <laughs> so, as I mentioned earlier, as we just heard Bevan speak about the repeal of Clause 4, of the Constitution. So I, so I find some um, gate skill famous, for you. I'll find some gate skill for you. And, and, it, and it famously saying, nationalism did not win us any votes. Uh, basically him condemning the left of the party. Do you think, do you think as a main reason uh, of, you know, Hugh Gates' school, I'd say, lack of, under, lack of knowledge between the Labour Party members because he just went out and said, left of the party are useless? Didn't win us any votes. Where is it? That sign here is my computer overheating again. I can't find it, but Gates Skill famously nineteen fifty nine goes, We have to accept the truth. The nationalization did not win us any votes. Now the truth is this. 
Nationalized industries are more profitable than privatized industries. Nationalized industries cost less to run than privatized industries. Nationalized industries have cheaper prices than the privatized industries. So what in the hell are you talking about? Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it, it, it showed his intellectual disconnection from the left of the party that we need. Because remember, as I always say, to win an election, you need Corbynites and Starmerites, the Brownites, the Blairites, the Social Democratic Liberals, and One Nation Conservatives. Now, yes, you can focus on winning over the Blairites and the Liberals and the One Nation Conservatives, but you do need the Corbynites. You know, yeah. yes, you need the centre and the right of centre and the left of centre, and intellectually speaking, I'm on the left of centre of this political spectrum. But, you know, th those two words are of equal meaning. The centre on the taxes, on welfare reform, on defence, but not centre on nationalisation. You know, no. look, look, perfect example of nationalisation, right, is the railways. Does anyone believe, left or right, that the current railways are anything but utterly shit? Who, mm. uh, go on, name me one person who generally thinks that Avanti West Coast is good at their job. Because I've not heard <laughs> one person defend oh, Avanti. Oh, I know, I know, yeah. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, go on. The Avanti West Coast CEO. Of course, of course, yes. But <laughs> even the Daily Mail are going after Avanti West Coast. Because everyone knows they've tripled the fares, they cut the services, they have incompetent staff crew, and they're just shit. So nationalise the rail. Energy, well, we've already seen uh, this year what happens when you not have a national energy planning strategy. Like Schultz has spent 100 billion euros stockpiling energy. He's not going to have a winter crisis this year. We've not stockpiled any energy. Guess what? We're going to have blackouts this year. So... You know, I think it's abandoned nationalisation, abandoning Clause 4, which is to secure for the workers by hand or by brain the full fruits of, the end of their industry, and the most equitable distribution thereof is the basis upon the means of production, distribution and exchange, which is what Clause 4 used to say was absurd, because Clause 4 is good. Oh, okay, so now yes, we'll move on to the what he left. said. I know, I've shifted a bit to the left since the first episode of this podcast. Okay, we'll, we'll, um, we'll move on to the EEC now yes. and his opinion on it. And he, and he said, and famously Hugh Gates School said... Ooh, this I can um, play, this I can play. Let me, let me do it, let me do it. Uh, Poison Chalice, episode one. Where he talks, where he goes, what is it? Uh, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. No, that's, that's Charles de Gaulle. Monsieur de Gaulle himself. The bastard who said he would only go to Britain with French, with the packet of French blood. Typical Frenchy. Where is Gate Skill? He ah found him, found him, found him. Was dismayed by his speech at the 1962 were in favour. That group was dismayed by his speech at the 1962 party conference. For we are not just a part of Europe. At least not yet. We have a different history. We have ties and links which run across the whole world. If this is the idea, the end of Britain as an independent nation state, I make no apology for repeating it, the end of a thousand years of history. You may say, all right, let it end. But my goodness, it's a decision that needs a little care and thought. There you go. Yeah. So, 
So, um, so, so, you, it, pe- people would argue it's the right sentiment. And why was a modern third? And why was a modern third uh, way Labour man like Gateskill a Eurosceptic? Uh, because the European Union, except for the nineteen eighties and early nineties, is a right wing organisation. That's right, fact. Yeah, true. That's reason. Except for the Delors era, where, into the absolute credit, the European Union was a broadly social democratic organisation, the European Union has always been a centre right libertarian group. You know, yeah. Maastricht, the Maastricht Treaty, what does it say? All countries must liberalise the railways. That means sell it off yeah. to the private sector to run a shit railway system. Right? So, yeah. you know, yeah. and you have to remember, a lot of people in the Labour Party look at the European Union and organise it. I mean, first of all, what are the tenants of the EU? Free trade. Free trade has destroyed British manufacturing. That is, mm. a, yes, Margaret Thatcher destroyed it. That is true. But so is free trade. The free movement of good of people, a very good thing in my view, because I believe that we are better when we embrace other people's cultures and they embrace us. But that is. But mm. if you are a person in a council estate who had one specific trade, whether it's a barber shop owner, whether it's a, a, a garden mower, whatever, and you've been undercutted by an Eastern European because they're better quality than you and better working than you, then you're angry. It's you know it's these policies, and this and I argue from the left wing perspective that what has led to people like Michael Foot and Peter Shaw and UK School being Eurosceptics. And until 2010, yeah. I'd say, leaving the EU, until about 2005, was always a left-wing cause. Then the stupid people like Bill Cash and Nigel Farage and all those bigoted people took it over and made Remain the natural option because voting leave probably meant you hated foreigners. Which it doesn't. Yeah. Which it doesn't. Because, well, you know, what was the 1975 slogan? Out and into the world. But I think everybody can agree that Brexit has been absolutely horrendous for our country in that we've been ostracised internationally, our trade has fallen through the floor, and we have these incompetent fucking halfwits running our country right now. But that's why he was against yeah. joining the EEC. Now, personally, I'd be in favour of joining the EEC. And the EU, because I believe it created 3 million jobs, unlasting prosperity, and made us one of the most powerful nation in Europe. But I can see both sides. Yeah. Yeah. So, shall we move on to Howard then? Yeah. Uh, okay. First question. Why was Wilson... Why did Wilson win in 64? Why did Wilson win in 64? Well... Yeah. I think... I, I think... Yeah, I think the, the Tories won a third term. Worse. Let's put it into context for the listeners. The Tories won a third term in, six, in 59 with a 100-seat majority for the Tories. So how, in your view, did Harold Wilson overturn that to win a four-seat majority in 64 and then a 96-seat majority in 66? I think, I, think, I think it was completely because of the lack of trust. And we've, we've come back to this again, like in Boris Johnson. Yeah. The lack of trust in the Conservative Party. When, when the Suez crisis happened with Eden, um, Matt Millen refused to speak to the Queen about his health and lied to her about it. And there was, and there were huge, and there were huge outcries about that. Um, and also, Alex, uh, Alex assume didn't offer anything up in the election. He didn't really offer anything to for the public to vote for. Howard Wilson offered racist. education. Yeah. Sorry? Except being very, very racist. Yes, yes, apart from that. But, he, <laughs> but what, what, 
But what Howard Wilson offered was a kind of like, I'm not going to say as good as Atley, but an Atley-esque ability or policy where, where, where he offered them, where he offered them, you know, Open University, for instance, a yeah. huge, a huge thing that, that Atley, uh, that uh, Wilson introduced. The Open University allowing anybody of any age, of any knowledge, of any background to go to university and do a university course. Um, and um, and he's and he's completely and he and he completely um, and he completely revamped. I'm not going to say he got rid of the consensus part, but he definitely he definitely introduced a new part of the consensus politics. He like the open university. The open university is now constant. It's still it's still a thing. It's still a thing nowadays. And that and that is because that that is a Wilson policy again. Another great thing of this nation was. A Labour policy. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't get many of the same things from the Conservatives. You, you, you don't really say, "Oh, Ron, Conservative policy." That's good. You get, can anyone but, think of and, a and, Conservative and, policy? No. <laughs> low taxes. So low taxes that, are very good, but beyond uh, investment in the military, that's good. But beyond that, really, anything? No. So, so those, but then when when wasn't offered to give to give the UK and yeah. um, a, a university thing, and he he also offered more improvements in the NHS, more investment in the NHS, more investment in pretty much every public sector. He wanted to he wanted to nationalise more industries as well, uh, to the ones that actually nationalised in the first place. It came it came back to a huge. It comes to a huge tipping point where, where you either vote for the same thing that's happened for the past 12 years where nothing's happened the economy's tight mm. or you can go for a new man new ideas and a new and a new um i'm gonna say a new and a new philosophy mm-hmm. on how and how the country should be run and the british public voted for wilson and that's why and that's why you got a small majority but fair enough you have to turn over for what 90 seats to 100, plus 100. four so a hundred, a hundred seats to plus four. So I mean, it, it, it was a big ask him to get, and I mean, even to get minority government would be impressive. But he got a majority government, which is even, which is great. And the good thing about Wilson, which people don't really talk about, he was a master of making MPs vote for what he wanted to go through yes, Parliament. I mean, you, you very rarely got rebellion from for Wilson because Wilson he had four seats. If any other person nowadays had a four seat majority, that would be classed as a minority government practically yeah. because you can't do it without another party support. But but Wilson could just easily just go, well, I've got a four-seat majority, that's four votes I've got to pass the law. And, he, and every single time, he got it through. And, and, and that is because of Wilson's ability to not only convince MPs, but convince the public. Another reason why he became, um, he was a, he, he became PM and beat the Conservatives. Well, let's listen to it, Wilson, shall we? Yeah, Wilson. Yeah. Is the nation that be by old fogey Tories. He would revitalize the nation with a planned economy and modern scientific thinking. We are restating our socialism in terms of the scientific revolution. I worked with him uh, fairly closely on the... That's Tony Benn. ...manifesto. Uh, he made the speech about the white heat of technology. The Britain that is going to be forged in the white heat of this revolution white heat of technology the britain that is going to be forged in the white heat of this revolution will be no place for restrictive practices or for outdated methods on either side of industry he was mocked to someone who's going to put on a white coat and go uh, Tony <laughs> Benn. 
But that is a, that is a bold statement, you know. The British is going to be fought in the white heat of revolution. Um, the white heat of technological change. But it was, in my view, it was a branch, a branch of socialism that was welcomed. Yeah. And through industrial strategy, we could harness the power of technology through government to make lives better, which is something that the modern-day politicians don't even understand because they believe that the Silicon Valley tech gurus can solve the problem. I believe that that government working with the unions, working with private private enterprise can solve the problem collectively. That's, I agree. I completely agree. But in your view, what was the biggest domestic policy achievement for Harold Wilson? Um, I, I talked about that a bit, but it's got to be the Open University. Yes, it and was. There's, and there's a, it's got to be education reform. Uh, it was one of the Open biggest University. policies he put through. Um, he introduced uh, also comprehensive as well and all of this. Yes. And these and these and these um, ideas that um, that no matter your no matter how no matter how intellectual you are, you will have an education up until up until you know twenty one of you. you know who won't. worked on that policy? Because who? Nye Bevan's wife. Really? Yeah. Nye Bevan's wife right. drove through that policy with Wilson. The, the Bevans are getting all over the, the getting Bevans, all over the, the, uh, the, the Labour Party. Oh, well, Bevan, of course, died in early 60, 1960, but Nye Bevan's yeah. wife was, drove it through him. The Bevans have done some great things. But in your view, what was the biggest domestic policy failure for Wilson? The biggest domestic policy failure, yeah. I think, was his unreaction to the to uh, inflation and his and his un, and his own and his remarkable inability to devalue the pound at the time. Yes. The pound needed to be devalued. The pound need, uh, and most people well, don't like most right people time? think the right strong pound. When was the right time? the right time was when his when when when, I, when all this cabinet asking him to devalue the pound. No, because listen, pound, on, on, the not to. on the day they right came to listen to me. On the fifteenth of October nineteen sixty four, when Labour won the fourth seat majority in the first time round, okay? James Callaghan, who was Chancellor, George Brown, the head of the Department of Economic Affairs, and Wilson were in Downing Street, and Callaghan said, devalue the pound. Right? Yeah. Wilson said, yeah. I can't, I've got a four-seat majority. 66, they could have, but Wilson was too high in the polls. So they really, I think, look, it was shit timing, but I couldn't think of any timing that was better than 67, really. <laughs> Um, I think you had I, the Seaman strike. You had uh, the, the war in Vietnam that was running down the dollar itself. You had a decline in British manufacturing. You had the loss making nationalized industries in '67, and you had it in '66. So what could he have done? I think I I completely think that 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 the best thing to have done in that in that situation would be to to um, he couldn't. As you say, he couldn't have done it with a four seat majority. No. But I think, uh, and I think, and I think, but I believe he should have done it as soon as remarkably possible. I think he, could, I think there were other places he could have done it before '67, and I think he should have done that. Maybe. Um, I believe, I believe, I believe he should have done it as soon as available possible. And um, but the issue was, um, the the issue is devaluing the pound. Is that many people at the time didn't actually understand what devaluing the pound meant. Because um, so so obviously his his infamous talk to the British public when he said he's going to devalue the pound, he, he literally had to spell out to the British public what it meant that he had to buying yeah, British would be cheaper about. and all of this. Sorry. Do you know how that came about? How? 
So, Jared, you know Gerald Kaufman, don't you? Yeah. The MP for a long time. So, Gerald Kaufman's brother <laughs> ringed him up and said, is my money in the bank going to be devalued? Will it be worth what it was yesterday? So, when Wilson gave the, the pound in your pocket speech, it was the pound in your pocket or in your purse or in your bank is not going to be devalued. Yes. No, it's just going to be devalued compared to other countries. It was a confusing policy. I mean, I couldn't completely understand them not wanting to do it straight away. Yeah. But I think uh, but, but, but I think his unwillingness to devalue the pound was undoubtedly the worst part of his premiership. Yeah, and now with Sterling crashing this last week, the media didn't even bat an eye. Yeah. The pound went down from, was it, $2.60 to $2.40 under Wilson. Oh, good God, he's crashed the economy. Liz Trust got the pound down to $1.03. Uh, is what it is. Yeah. Idiots. They nearly they crashed the economy. But um, why, you know, in January 1969, Labour were 24 points behind the polls, right? How did then Labour, yeah. in your view, go from being 24 points behind the polls to by the time Wilson called the 1970 election in May 70, Labour were 15 points ahead in the polls? What do you think happened? Was it that the upturn in economic fortunes led by Roy Jenkins, the new Chancellor, was it the incompetence of Mr Heath, or was what was it that saw Labour go from being think... 24 points behind to 15 points ahead in 16 months? I think there's a combination of most things. I don't think you could point it down to one single fact that could give mm. it extra. Um, as, as even Boris Johnson, you know, it wasn't it wasn't just party gate that brought him down. It was in the fact that he lied, and it's the fact that he carried on lying, and the fact that more things covered up, and the fact that the police yeah. inv invested in the, uh, investigation uh, just when they report could come out. Yeah. All these factors led to his, uh, his uh, opinion going down. And I would say vice, I would say vice versa for uh, Wilson. Plenty of factors. The economy after his after his devaluation did, did boost. It, it, did, it, did, it, it, it did take a bit of a climb, mm. and I think not straight away, obviously, but I mean, yeah. over time, you could you could you could see where it was going. Um, the same the same with Heath. Heath became incredibly incompetent. I mean, like genuinely, genuinely, could barely even doesn't even know what his own name was incompetent. Yeah. Right? Uh, when when it came to the nineteen seventy uh, the nineteen seventy. Uh, and I think, and I, and I think, and I think these factors alone, single-handedly, would give any would give any uh, Labour Party uh, or Labour leader a chance of winning the election. Yeah. And, and I don't think I don't think what Howard Wilson did was incredibly exceptional to get his fifteen, uh, his fifteen to 20, uh, 25 points, twenty five points ahead to fifteen ahead. Is that it? Twenty five yeah. points behind to fifteen ahead. Yeah. Twenty five behind uh, to fourteen. Yeah. Yeah. 24 yeah. behind I don't think the yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't think anything incredibly exceptional. I mean, like, obviously, with the Open University and all of that, but, I mean, I don't think he did anything, like, super thing, like, you know, this, this is going to be a vote. I think it was just gradually people got used, not got used to, but understood what a Wilson government did and understood how Wilson government made their lives better in the long term. And I think, I think that was a huge reason for why Wilson got that, uh, got that extra boost. Yeah, which is why anyone right now is complacent about the government and their current horrendous polls, I'd say look at Wilson. You know, it is yeah. possible that they can go from obscenely behind to obscenely ahead. Now, ultimately, he won the 1970 general election, but don't be complacent, Labour, my fellow Labour voters. Do not be complacent. 
anything. No. This time last year, Johnson was 14 points ahead. So don't be complacent. Yeah. We can we can all you know do the V signs at the government, right? That we do to others trust. Do the flick a few V signs at them because of the destruction of the British economy. But don't be complacent. Now, no. let's talk about um, Wilson in the seventy-four. I mean, we could talk about the liberalisation laws. Talk about the legalisation of abortion, the legalisation of gay marriage. Sorry, of same-sex partnerships and the abolition of death penalty. The abolition death penalty is interesting, though. That was actually not a formal abolition. It was because in 1964, Sidney Silverman, the Labour MP, did a backbench motion to suspend capital punishment for five years, past 418 to 156. Then Wilson abolished it altogether in 69. In 69. Um, mm. Which couldn't happen today. It couldn't happen today. It was only because MPs at that time had such respect because they were paid the same salary as, say, doctors were paid, that MPs were not seen as in it for themselves. They were seen as honourable members. Now, it is true that the trade unions were topping up labour salaries and the bankers were topping up the Tory salaries. That's true. But they were seen as honourable men doing an honourable job. Um, let's talk about the, the third and fourth Wilson term, because, of course, Wilson won four election victories... Why has the 1974-1976 period of the Wilson years been written out of the Wilson history? Um, I think I think I think when you compare it to the, uh, they were. I mean, you compare it to Liz Truss's government. It was like one of the best. What Liz Truss has just done now, it would be one of the best prime ministers in history. Compared it to her right now, but I think compared to his previous years, I mean, it wasn't really much to write home about, really, was it? He didn't, he didn't really do much. He, um, the polls are tanking. You could see, you could see, uh, you could see um, the, um, the winter discontent coming along. And sorry, polls went tanking. What are you about? Finance number. No, 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 not polls. I mean, I'm talking about this trust, this trolls, this trust polls are tanking. Um, yeah, right. yeah. But, but 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 when it, when it comes to but when it comes to Wilson, I mean, he didn't really, he didn't, he didn't offer much up. And, and during these times, I mean, he kind of took a back seat and that just everything to just go ahead and just, and he, and he, it was kind of the captain of the ship who asked somebody else to stay for him. So, um, so I think, I, I think, I think a huge, I think a huge reason why, um, he didn't get, uh, why, why the, why his final years were written off in history was because, was because, I mean, they were also overshadowed by James Callahan and crisis, what's crisis and all of that. And all that nonsense. I think I think they were overshadowed by the winter discontent, and they were absolutely, definitely um, under overshadowed by um, overshadowed by Wilson's previous years. Where he, I mean, you can't really top what Wilson did before. So uh, I don't understand why people would kind of focus the 45, 46 years because they didn't really offer much up to the British public. Well, let's change your mind, shall we? And the parliamentary report gives solid backing to my claim. That this is how Wilson's uh, last conference speech in 1975. No previous prime minister, no Labour prime minister, and certainly no Conservative, has been able to present a record of a government which has carried through so much of its manifesto by legislative and executive action in so short a time. In the uh, four and a half months in which the House was sitting, 
during the short parliament of last year, 35 bills became law. And I ask you to bear with me for a moment while I list them. We passed the Trade Union and Labour Relations Act, which repealed the 1971 Industrial Relations Act, preserved and extended existing unfair dismissals provisions and extended trade union immunities. The Health and Safety at Work Act, setting up the Health and Safety Commission. The Prices Act, which abolished the pay board, provided 500 million pounds for food subsidies on key essential foodstuffs and strengthened the price code. We ended the sticky labels racket by prohibiting upward repricing of goods already on the shelves in the shops and we restricted the frequency of implementation of price increases. In the National Insurance Act 1974, we fulfilled the manifesto pledge to raise pensions to £10 for a single person and £16 for a couple. The Finance Act introduced major changes to eliminate tax dodgers. The Rent Act gave security of tenure to those in furnished accommodation. We doubled the regional employment premium, which Labour had introduced in 1967, and which the Conservatives were committed to abolish. <sighs> That was the short parliament with a minority Labour government. Now the manifesto on which we went to the country a year ago. First, bills which have already been placed on the statute book in the terms of the manifesto. Child benefit, creating a new scheme of child credits. These are on the statute book. <clears throat> Finance number one, introducing the capital transfer tax. Finance number two, tackling the lump. The Housing Rents and Subsidies Act, replacing the Tory Rent Act with a new financial system for public sector housing. The Offshore Petroleum Development Scotland Act, nationalizing land for oil construction sites. The Oil Taxation Act, fulfilling the manifesto proposals for taxation of oil companies' profits on the North Sea. Pensioners' payments. The Referendum Act, fulfilling our pledge to give the British people the final say on membership of EEC. The Social Security Benefits Act, maintaining the real value of pensions and creating the new non-contributory invalidity benefit. Invalid care allowances to help those families with disabled members and increased family allowances. The Social Security Pensions Act, totally reforming the whole system of state superannuation and introducing the mobility allowance for the disabled. All those are on the statute book. I thought I'd mention them just in case you might have forgotten any of them. Now the bills introduced, but not through all their parliamentary stages. That's a list of all bills that got passed in one year. Mm. Let's keep going. The community land bill providing for the... Oh, by the way, these bills were passed with a majority of three. The Labour Party at that time had an overall majority of three seats. Three. Right. And we got all that passed. Public ownership of development land. The employment protection bill providing new rights for workers at work. The industry bill turning into legislative form the white paper on which we fought the election, creating the National Enterprise Board and the system of planning agreements. The petroleum and submarine pipelines bill creating the British National Oil Corporation and providing new powers of control over the pace of deple depletion and for the provisions of pipelines. The Scottish Development Agency and Welsh Development Agency legislation establishing these two important new institutions in Scotland and Wales. The Trade Union and Labour Relations Amendment Bill, removing unacceptable Lords Amendments forced into the previous year's Act in the conditions of our then minority government. 
the socially redistributive budgets of November and April, the Sex Discrimination Bill asserting new rights for women and creating the Equal Opportunities Commission. All those measures are before Parliament now. I clearly can't anticipate the Queen's speech opening the second session of this Parliament, but a commitment has been given to the reintroduction of the bill already published to take the aircraft and shipbuilding industries into public ownership. Work is advanced, in some cases involving the drafting of the necessary legislation on devolution, ending the 11 plus, abolishing agricultural tied cottages, the development land tax, the transfer of new town housing assets to local authorities, liberalizing official secrets legislation, introducing an independent element into the procedure of complaints against the police, and a race relations bill to strengthen the existing legislation protecting minorities. Work is also going on on legislation to phase out pay beds, to bring the ports into public ownership, to create the Cooperative Development Agency, and weights and measures legislation to provide for unit pricing. Our outline proposals for a wealth tax have been published and are being studied by a parliamentary select committee in advance of the introduction of legislation. The government has announced its policy in respect of our pledge on industrial democracy and is setting up an inquiry to prepare the way for legislation. Well, that is a breathtaking list. Took my breath anyway. I don't know how you felt about it. There you are. Now will you withdraw your statement saying that the Howard Wilson government of 74, 76 didn't do very much? Uh, in context to what they did in the other That's period. a lot more than what they did in the first five years. Yeah, but they're not major stuff. On the, on, no, altogether, the major... Sorry, shall we go, shall, shall we repl shall I replay the list? Increasing child living, increasing pensions, the industry bill, nationalising the ports, the wealth tax, industrial democracy. These are amazing yeah. ideas. Scottish devolution referendum on the EEC. These are fantastic ideas. All ideas that other Labour Party part. Uh, all yes, all ideas that other Labour Party Yes, I know we've been this one for 75 years, but it doesn't take away the point these are amazing ideas. Yes, I'm not arguing with that, Dad. Oh, jolly good. But, anyway. but, but, but what, what, what I'm saying, the reason it's forgotten is because, I mean, it's such... They're just classic Labour Party policies, yeah, aren't they? good policies. Better than these, what these Cressons are doing. Yeah, right. yeah. I, I'm not saying they're not good, but I'm just saying the classic, that, the classic Labour Party policies. That, that's why they've been forgotten. That's true. Right, let's go on with Jim Callaghan. Let's go from, Okay, so, was James Callaghan the most qualified person to become Prime Minister? Yep. Having been Chancellor, Home Secretary and Foreign Secretary before becoming PM? Yeah, of course yeah, he, he was. was. Of course he was. James Callaghan is the only person to ever have been Chancellor, Foreign Secretary, Home Secretary and Prime Minister. The only one. He was the most qualified, the most competent. I remember that election you had. You had Tony Crossland, the man who came with social democracy. You had Dennis Healy, who was the Chancellor. You had Roy Jenkins, who, was who had been Chancellor and Home Secretary and was Home Secretary again. You had Tony Benn. You had uh, Michael Foot, I think, stood in 1906. Yes, he did. Michael Foot stood in 1906. And Callahan won. Because Callahan was the most competent, the most realistic, and the most sane. Yeah. So Callahan was my. Uh, personally, I'd have gone for uh, Michael Foot, then uh, Callahan, and Callahan for the rest of them. Okay, so with the British government being forced to go to the uh, International Monetary Fund yeah. for the two billion 
being uh, loaned, who being unloaned. Yeah. Did this, did this like in 2009 show our, uh, our financial and fiscal idiocy and condemn us to lose the 1978 election? Yes, I think it would have yeah. if it had not been for, had it not been for the pact with the Liberals, I suspect it would have. Because the pact with the Liberals had brought economic prosperity under Callaghan and David Steele, I don't think it did. I think the winter discontent condemned us to lose the 78-79 election, the 1979 general election. But the IMF certainly showed that we were fis- that we were not fiscally incompetent at the time, but we then later knew that the civil service had actually messed up the figures and overstayed our borrowing requirements by £11 billion. Pounds. Yeah. So, was the pact with David Steele's Liberals an act of genius then? Yes. Yes, remember, David okay. Steele's Liberals were not like Nick Clegg's Liberals. These were genuine Social Democrats. And David Steele was very much like the old, the, Labour, the right of the, part of the Labour Party. Same, <laughs> rational, fiscally prudent, but compassionate and fair. And that gave us a majority of 18 seats, lasted us one year, and kept us going masterfully. So yes, I think I was an act of genius. And had we, when we abandoned the pact with David Steele, then gone to the country for a general election, James Callaghan would have won the election or would have been the largest party and we could have been in a coalition with the Liberals. Right, but, okay, so... Um, well, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. The reason Labour have always been sceptical of PACs is because of... Um, because of... Oh, for God's sake, come on. Right, is we could wait. Just keep going, James. I'm trying to find a podcast that had something about. Right, okay. Right, so, so when the North, so that when the North Sea oil was discovered and handed by Tony Benn, yeah. if Labour had won it in '79, do you think Callahan and Dennis Lee, Michael Foot, and others would have done something bold with the hundred billion pound a year we could have had from North Sea oil, or they sold it straight away like Margaret Thatcher did? I actually can't remember what the podcast was called. I'll jump in. One minute, I'll answer your question once I found the podcast. Um, that's it, the reunion, that's what it's called. Right. It the start, it has something that Wilson says about packs with the party and he tears into packs. Yeah, it's a good thing on the BBC Four called BBC Radio Four called Reunion, which they get Hattersley, David Steele, another chap, and another chap to talk about the Liblad Pact. But let me play what Wilson says. Car after while Martin's still around, commemorating Martin Luther King. The 1970s were a stormy time for Britain, with rocketing inflation. In October reached the new deans in the House of Commons and party whips using drastic measures to get their members into the chamber to vote ensured that British politics would never be quite the same again. As long as I am leader of this party, Labour will not enter into any coalition with any other party, Liberal or Conservative, or anyone else. Back in 1973, Harold Wilson told his party conference he was determined to go it alone, despite the mounting economic crisis. There will be no electoral treaty, no political alliance, no understanding, no deal, no arrangement, no fix, neither will there be any secret deal or secret discussion. Inflation was the worst. It reached over 30%. 
Now, that, that's the reason why the pact didn't go on beyond the 12 months, because Harold Wilson, and mainly because of 1931, where Ramsey MacDonald, the former Labour Prime Minister, basically joined the National Government and joined the Conservative Party. So, the Labour Party have always been very sceptical of pacts. You remember the 2010 election, when your people like John Reid and David Blunkett, who've been cabinet ministers under Tony Blair, had said, just go away gracefully, don't do a deal with the sodding Liberals. Because in the north of England, Labour activists hate the Liberals more than they hate the Tories. Anyway, now you mute yourself, you silly fool. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I agree with that. Um, I think completely that um, when it comes down to the South as well, the Conservatives hate the Liberals more than they hate Labour because we just because vice because the late Lib Dems threaten everywhere. The Conservative Labour threaten in the North and in the South. But um, so when it comes to the North CR, which Margaret Thatcher sold all along, if James Callahan won. Would he have done something radical? Would he have introduced yes. a new Labour ideal like the Open University by Howard Wilson or like the NHS? Well, I mean, James Callaghan famously wants to do the National Education Service, that we create a total state-run, free-of-charge system, basically an NHS version of education. And obviously Michael Foote, who was very pragmatic, famously said, we've got to hang on till the oil money comes in, because when that comes in, we can change the UK, fundamentally. They had things like nationalisation of industry, the total nationalisation of education. They wanted to fix social care, national care service, you know. So, I think we've seen a lot more bold ideas if we had stayed in power because of what Michael Foote said. We've got to wait till the oil money comes in. You've seen a national education service, national care service, reindustrialization, and some of the shitty reforms Margaret Thatcher brought in couldn't have happened. So oh, um, what did Thatcher do with the oil money? Let's go back to that. What did Thatcher do with the oil money? Oh, yeah, she spent it on lots and lots of tax cuts and subsidising her failed privatisations and subsidising the denigration of the north of England that her monetarist policies caused. She used the greatest asset we've had in 50 years, North Sea Oil. First of all, she privatised BP, therefore fucking over our revenues to 30 billion a year rather than 100 billion a year. And then, and then a stupid woman then used it to subsidise her own idiotic nonsense that ruined the North of England. Yeah, absolutely. Do you remember when, um, you know so when, NSO, you know when North Sea Oil came out? Do you know what? There was a paper in Scotland... It was 73 or 74, it was, 1974, it said, if Scotland was to harness the full power of North Sea oil, they would become the Kuwait of the North and would have higher living standards than America. He actually went to say that Scotland could have the highest living standards in the Western world if they harnessed the full power of North Sea oil. And this is one of the reasons many Scottish people hates Margaret Thatcher because North Sea oil, which is their biggest commodity, was wasted. Wait, it yeah. has been written out of history. How that stupid bitch completely wasted North Sea oil. Oh, fucking gave it all to Norway and squandered it on privatizations. As you can see, I'm not exactly a great fan of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> no. Uh, so... So, um, why did Jim Callahan not go to the country in autumn of seventy eight? The Labour were polling for, at forty seven against the Tories that had forty two percent. Well, do you know 
Would you like my answer? Would you like David? Would you like my answer? Would you like David Steele to tell you why? Uh, I'll tell you your answer. Well, actually, my answer and David Steele's answer are actually the exact same, which is that Jim Callahan basically said he couldn't win the majority. So, okay, let me give you the anecdotes. So, in the in the summer of '78, Labour were polling at forty nine percent. They were polling very, very well. The economy was growing. The industrial harmony, you know, it was good. So people yeah. said, and obviously the Lib Lab Pact had come to an end. So people said, go on, Jim, call the election, we'll win. And indeed, there was forecast saying Labour could win a majority of up to 90 seats. 90. Yeah. Now, famously, Callahan goes, uh, everyone thought, he's going to go in September. He's going to go in September and he'll win. Because remember, Thatcher wasn't liked. Thatcher was, yeah. you know, she, she back then you had the moderate people like, uh, you know, Jim Pryor, Nicholas Soames's dad. You had people like that who hated her. You know, as a divided party. And Callahan, let's not forget, was a was always all the polls showed Jim Callahan was more popular than the Labour Party. You know, except for January 1979 and February 1979, James Callahan was more popular than Labour. And the Tories were more popular than Margaret Thatcher. Now, yeah. famously, Callahan goes to the TUC in 78 and, uh, and you know, does a speech where he Confident says... Confident government it's um, it's in, quite in funny. 78. I thought it was... This a, is him talking about the election. ...to take the case to the country. There was I waiting at the church. Perhaps you recall how it went on. All at once, he sent me round a note. Here's the very note. This is what he wrote. Can't get away to marry you today. My wife... Won't let me. <laughs> so we were all rather stunned when we watched on television and he sang the song and it was clear he was not going to hold the election. I mean, that was the most bizarre way to say, I'm not going to call the election. You, you know, you. you, you what? <laughs> and Callahan, you know, famously said, What was it? You know, uh, you can't. Yeah, when he's talking about the industrial disputes or something, Callahan basically pisses off the, the, the Ford workers by saying this. Out of control. You can't get more out of the out of the bank than there is in it. We can just about scrape the 8.8 or somewhere round about there. I keep on saying that. But if they stay out for one month, two months, three months, I shan't in all honesty be able to come back to them and say, sorry, I've suddenly found something and you can now have a large increase. It was the first. Actually, let me show one more thing, because Callahan, in my view, is a very good politician. Um... As a as a as an intellectual, Jim Callaghan was a fine man. And I think it was it was Lou Gardner of Thames Television, good good old Lou Gardner, who interviewed Callahan and they asked him about you know, do do we need a harsh budget? You know, ta basically more. Believe um, that they will understand. Right. So basically, uh, Lou Gardner goes, you know, do we need a harsh budget? Basically, more spending cuts, more tax increases in what has to be an election year. This may I add, I think was. Was it February 79? Was it February 79? Was it? It was, uh, yeah, 9th of February 1979. This was at the peak of the winter of discontent. This was at the peak when the bins weren't being collected, the water was being boiled, the schools were not operating, they were shit in the street. 
you know, I want this Callahan to say. This is why I admire Callahan, actually. Uh, Callahan says this. And our latest. That's not it. that. And I should emphasize. Are you What kind of consequences? Sir? Further monetary or tough budget? Are you prepared to do that in what has to be election year? Yes, I am, because I believe in the people. And I believe that they will understand why we are doing it. We've pointed a straight course. I want the people's support. Although I naturally want to win the election, I shall do my best to win the election. I want to win it as honestly as possible. And if that means having a tough budget, I don't want it. I'll do my best to keep control of the other factors, but we'll have to have it. That's why I like Jim Callahan so much. That is why. A politician that actually is willing to tell the truth and not be populist. Being straight yeah. to the people saying, we're in an economic shit show because of world standards. Now we're going to have to be tough. It's going to be painful. I don't like it, but we're going to have to do it. Not like these idiots that say, oh, yeah. we can give everything to everybody without paying for it. You know, famously, when, was it Roosevelt? Because he was mocking the Republicans. The Republicans in 36 were protesting to support the New Deal. And Roosevelt goes, Let, but beware of those people who say, of course we believe in all these things. You know, we believe in social security. We believe in work for the unemployed. We believe in saving homes. Cross our hearts and hope to die. We believe in all these things. But we do not like the way the present administration is doing them. Just turn them over to us. We will do all of them. We will do more of them. We will do it better. And most importantly of all, the administration of it won't cost anyone anything at all. You know, which is, that was Roosevelt mocking Alf London in 1936. But that's what people are now doing nowadays. Yeah. And then they say, why people don't trust politicians? Because you're not being straight. You know, no. we're £200 billion borrowing this year. Everyone knows that means we're going to have to make revenue increases and spending efficiencies. Everyone knows that. But God, if you say you want to raise taxes, you bastard, you don't believe in enterprise. You want to reduce spending. Oh, so you believe old women should be thrown out of the care homes, the disease should be thrown out of the hospitals, the schools should be shut down? I mean, oh, God. Anyways, let's keep going. Oh, shit, I didn't get yeah. the David Steele answer. God, for God's sake, this is such a mean thing to do. What? I give so many good anecdotes, but don't actually even answer the question. <laughs> right, let me give you the, what David Steele said about why Callahan didn't call the election. It was the first time that public sector workers. Where is it? No, that's 79. Here, found it, found it. In September. Uh, he ignored this completely. By now, the pact with the Liberals was over. With the general election looking likely, both sides wanted to campaign separately. We ended perfectly amicably in the summer of uh, uh, 78, expecting to be an election in the autumn. It was a pretty confident government um, in 78, and I thought it was a, a good time to take the case to the country. There was... And they came 
I mean, long after he'd retired. But, um, and that was quite a shock. A long time afterwards, um, he came to my house, I mean, long after he'd retired. He was on a visit with, with his wife, holiday in Scotland. They came, and I said to him, you know, why didn't you have the election at that time? And he said, I was advised that I couldn't be certain of getting an overall majority. And my response was, well, what was wrong with that? We were doing quite well, and we'd have done even better uh, with a fresh mandate um, after an election. I think I can say now, many years later, uh, that I talked to Jim um, afterwards, some years afterwards, about why... That's the voice of Norman Tebbett you're now hearing. Uh, Margaret Thatcher's employment minister, Margaret Thatcher's... Basically, Margaret Thatcher's favourite minister for the first eight years of her premiership. He didn't go for an election in the autumn of 78. And he told me that he felt that he might have won in 78. Would have. But that he wasn't, simply wasn't prepared to go on through another parliament without a majority, having to put up with the sort of things he'd had to put up with um, during his time as prime minister through the, all the troubles he'd had. And as he said to me, um, I decided I'd go for a broke, go through the winter. If it went well, I could be back with a majority. And if it didn't, I'd be out. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Jolly good. Okay, so, so we're moving to the next question now. Talk, talk about the winter discontent. Having happened, do you think this was the overriding factor in the end of the Labour government? Yes. Or was it the failure to win the Scottish devolution, my friend? Both were. Both were. Um, in a minute, I'll play Robert McKenzie going through all the polls in, in 1978-79. But undoubtedly, the winter of discontent was the worst point for unions. The unions destroyed themselves because of the winter of discontent. You know, rats in the streets, the bins stacking up, the water being boiled, the schools not operational, the gas being turned off. It was a shit show. It was an absolute shit show. And the Labour Party didn't deal with it. Okay, Jim Callaghan did bring in the, the unions in. He did bring in um, the, the head of the NUST and other unions like the New P, National Union of, the National Union of Public Employees. But they didn't get, they didn't get their hands, they didn't grip on it. They, you know... Right, let me give you the context of what happened. So pay policy was the uh, objective to keep wage controls at 5%. Pay wouldn't rise beyond 5%. That was the objective, right? Now, that had worked. Now, in December, the Ford workers wanted a 15% increase. Parliament voted it down. So Ford went on strike. Then the National Union of Public Employees uh, wanted um, 26%. The Civil Service wanted 30%. They said no. So then that caused the winter discontent in And where was Jim Callahan during the winter discontent, I hear everybody ask? Guadeloupe. He was in Guadeloupe, in, you know, dancing. And he was like, well, for God's sake, man. You know, famously, not the 9 o'clock news, which is a good satirical show, always started out opening credits with Jim Callaghan dancing in 1978 during the winter. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, everyone thinks it was one of him sunbathing was the issue, or him coming back and saying, uh, don't run your country down with talk of mounting chaos. He didn't actually say what crisis, what crisis. He said, don't run your country down with talk of mounting chaos. But, for God's sake. Anyways, so the winter discontent was a huge part in us losing. But the fact we didn't deliver Scottish devolution, because obviously the SNP done very well in 1974, they got 11 MPs, we were shit scared of the SNP, and, um, you know, we had a deal with them. And because they broke off the pact, famously, the, 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 the 1979 vote of no confidence in Callaghan wasn't done by Margaret Thatcher. The SNP wrote the vote of no confidence. So really? it. Yeah, the SNP, they wrote the vote of no confidence. It wasn't Mrs. Thatcher or, you know, or uh, Sir Humphrey Atkins, who was the chief whip at the time that wrote it. It was the SNP. Huh? Yeah. You can't fucking whine about Margaret Thatcher. You helped her get in power. So shut up <laughs> with your whining. Ooh, Margaret Thatcher was evil. Yeah, she was. But who helped her get in power? Oh, you did. Yes, that's right. Though it's quite funny, though. The SNP went from 11 MPs to 2 in 1979. So that's always good to know. Yeah. Now we'll get all the, so, cy- we'll the cybernats going after us. How dare you criticize okay, so, so. Yeah, it's just nonsense. The SNP so facilitated, no facilitated a Tory government in 2015 yeah. and 1979. Deal with it. That's the truth. Anyway, keep going. With a no confidence oh, vote oh. on March 28th, oh, 1979. Let me, let me show you something. Um, this is the outline of all the polls <laughs> under the 78, 79 period. So remember this. The last election, Labour had got 37% of the vote, and the Tories got 34% of the vote. I think those figures are correct. I could be probably wrong, actually, on those figures. Let me just quickly check. October 1974, general election. Wilson's fourth victory, the majority of three. What did we... What did we, got, we got 37. I know we got 37% of the vote. What did the Tories get in 74? They got 35. We got 39. They got 35. Oh, yes, because we got 37% in, 19, in February, 19, not October. Okay, so it was 39.35. Here's what the polls were from July 78 to March 79. Just, but not necessarily the most. This is done by the great Robert McKenzie, who was the man who developed the swingometer. Are the polls at one... By the way, for those people who are not election freaks like me, uh, swingometer is basically an election graphic that shows the percentage change from voters from Conservative to Labour and from Labour to Conservative. Um, perhaps the most prestigious, but not necessarily the most accurate, but perhaps the most prestigious. And look at what's been happening over the last period, almost of a year. Now look at this. Conservatives, 45. Labour, 45. He's reading the Gallup polls. Now look at this. Conservatives, 45. Labour, 43. August last year, 43, 47. Labour lead. That was going into the moment when Jim Callaghan decided not to hold an election. Then 49-42. Then October 42-47. Labour again in the lead. 48, Labour in the lead November to 43. December, reversing. Conservatives, 48-42. Now, stop for a moment. I treat that as bracketing equal all the way. Remember, each figure is subject to a three-point move in either way. And therefore, 
any figure is subject to three-point variation. Suddenly in February, as you'd expect, in the great industrial crisis situation, the Tories leap ahead, 53-33, and the last Gallup poll was Tories 51-37. Some slight evidence of tightening up again. But the key point I want to make is the polls where when Jim Callaghan might have called the election last October, looking quite well in his favor, and therefore, uh, I think it's quite wrong to assume that it's a foregone conclusion, because this is obviously the immediate reaction to the industrial disputes of that time. And there's no reason whatever, in my view, to assume uh, that there's any necessary certainty about the outcome. Uh, certainly the Tories ought to move into the election favorites, but we can see the strength of the Labour position. And what's very odd is that for a very long time, the Tories were actually um, only a few points ahead of Labour and sometimes behind them, and Labour was actually scoring more on the opinion polls than they did at the last election. So we Very important. Really, an exciting contest in which no one should say it's a foregone conclusion. Good old Robert McKenzie. But that is true. The Labour in those polls was scoring, except for February 1979 and March 1979, Labour was scoring higher than the 39% they got in the last election. Now, mm. that's partly because yeah. of Jim Callaghan's competence, partly because things are going well, and partly because people saw the hell of Tories and thought they would destroy the country. Yeah. How, how, wisdom in, how, how does wisdom come from all times? Now, let's move on to the no confidence question. Yeah, so with no confidence vote on March 28th, 1979, what caused them to lose? Was it the pipeline? Was it Frank McGuire, Dr. Broughton? devolution uh, Clement Freud or Walter Harrison what caused it this is going to have so many fucking anecdotes but here we go let's run through them all so of course they called the vote in the conference 28th of March 1979 let's run through each one the pipeline the pipeline was Enoch Powell of the a former right wing Tory who'd been kicked out of the cabinet for being racist then a member of the Ulster Unionists because he left he left the Tory party because of uh, joining the European referendum amateur of the 74 election. He goes to Roy Hattersley and he says to Roy Hattersley, um, I think we ought to talk. No, he doesn't. Sorry. He goes, he goes oh yeah. Uh, Enoch Powell goes, uh, I, I, we need something. This was two days before the 79, March 79. Two days before March 28th. He goes, we need something. And he goes, what do you mean? And he goes, well, we have seven Ulster Unionists, and we can stop them from voting down the government. And they go, what do you mean? And he goes, I'm clear what I mean. And he goes, all right, what do you need? And, and apparently, gone to Hattersley, Powell was trying to just think of anything to, so the Tories wouldn't win. And he goes, uh, a pipeline. We need a pipeline going from the north of England to Ulster. And he goes, all right. So they, take, they, they type it out, and they go to Jim Callaghan, and Roy Hattersley famously says, I believe in the pipeline. And Jim Callaghan, what's a congruence within a pipeline going to do for this country? Nothing. So they go, nope, this government is not for sale. Uh, famously, they win over two Ulster Unionist MPs whose names have briefly escaped me, but I'm actually going to research them because I do believe you should get the anecdotes correct. Uh, Vote of confidence. Mr. Cusker was one, and the other chap's name is forgotten. What's his name? The Irish nationalists. No, I don't care about Jerry Fitz. No, I do care about Jerry Fitz, but in this one specific context of the confidence vote where he voted us out, uh, James, no, it wasn't, it was two Ulster people. Who were the Ulster people? Oh, I've forgotten who the Ulster people were now. 
yeah, just Carson and Mr. McCusker, Harold McCusker, that was it. And they voted because they were promised a, a reviewing of the food prices and Northern Ireland would get better prices on food. I know, I know. Uh, so the pipeline, I think, caused it because famously we got two Ulster Unionists against us and they had, I think it was five who voted for the vote on the confidence and we could have got all five on board and since we only lost by one vote. Um, Frank Maguire. Frank Maguire, of course, was the independent Republican who barely ever voted in the House of Commons, mainly because he owned a bar and he was always being drunk. But he, when he did vote, he would vote Labour. He would always vote with the government. And uh, they flew him over. And famously, they said, uh, have you spoken to anyone? And he goes, well, I have had talks with the Labour folks. I have had talks with the Labour folks. And he goes, well, what are you going to do? Well, we're going to move to a deal. And, you know, there's some good things. Has anyone of the Conservative Party had to contact you? Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. And he just walks off. Um, but, of course, Jerry Fitt went in and basically annihilated him. He goes, what was it? He goes, there's a rumour in this house. Oh, do you know what? I'm going to stop the Irish accent before I get shot. Um, where is it? Because I'll, I'll get you Jerry Fitt's speech. Well, he goes, there's a rumour in this house, and if it is, it's disgusting. The honourable member, honourable member for Savannah and South Tyrone is in this building tonight. And everyone goes, ooh, like that, the other one, ooh. He goes, this is a disgusting. He's never been in this building, never casting a vote. And he, what was it? Where is it? Where is Jerry Fett? Where is Jerry Fett? Where is Jerry? There's Jerry. Deployed, John. It's true, it is despicable. Bidding might just persuade him to join us in the lobby. But there's a rumour circulating in the house today. If it's true, it is despicable that the honourable member for Fermanagh South Tyrone is somewhere within this building. <laughs> Talking to some government members or some people from the whip's office. But he's not going to be able to talk to me in case I persuade him to do the same as I am going to do tonight. I understand, and I will be watching very, very carefully. I mean, famously, uh, they tried to get Jerry Fitz to vote with the government, because Jerry Fitz remembered the, social, the SDLP, the Social Democratic Labour Party, in Northern Ireland. And uh, so they brought him to number 10, Jerry Fitz, and Jim Callaghan goes, basically, it's going to be 311, 310 against the government. So they give him a bottle of whiskey and a bottle of taddy, and at that point, they lost Jerry Fitz because of alcohol. I don't know why, but apparently, the Jerry Fitz felt very offensive. Very offensive. Um, Dr. Broughton. Dr. Broughton, Alfred Broughton, was the MP for Batley and Morley. A very good constituency of very nice people in Batley, in, in good old Batley. Um, James's face is like, I've forgotten Batley. How dare you? How dare you forget Batley? Who do you think you are? I know what Batley is. Batley and Spend, Dad. I know yeah, exactly what Batley is. Anyway, Batley and Morley, and he was very ill. Dr. Broughton was very, very ill. He was on life support at the time. He was basically going <coughs> to die within a week. But they had brought him down before. And remember, these were the days when you didn't actually have to go in the House of Commons to vote if you were ill. They would The ambulance would come onto the Palace of Westminster grounds, the whip would see that you were there, nod, and you'd be driven back up. To your house. 
Those were the days. Right. And famously, there was a down where Barbara Castle, Labour MP for Blackburn, was so uh, up that she had tubes. She had some god-awful uh, throat illness. And she had tubes. And she said, I'm not going to be wielded. I'm going to walk to the thing. No, I'll be myself. And she walked with a, walk, with a walking stick and with all these tubes. Uh, medical tubes to help her breathe. And everyone went, that's fair play. But Dr. Broughton uh, was very ill. And uh, Walter Harrison, who was his friend, had said, we need, basically, Dr. Broughton to come down. And... Jim Callaghan said, no, you can't do that. You cannot bring down a man who is basically at death's door. It's really cruel. Don't. Now, by six o'clock, they said, there was seven o'clock, they said, fine, try. Now, of course, it was too late by then to try because the vote was at 10 o'clock. So he couldn't do it. Yeah. But if Dr. Brought, but they could have brought him down. That's what breaks the heart. He could have been brought down. But it was the humanity of Jim Callaghan going, going, you can't bring down someone who's about to die. It's not good. Um, uh, Devolution obviously had a huge part in it because the SNP screwed us. Clement Freud. Clement Freud was a Liberal MP who the, the government basically said, if you stay in your constituency, we will do some more freedom of information. Because Clement Freud was a big believer in freedom of information. So they said... Stay in your constituency and we'll do another Freedom of Information Act. Now he didn't. He came down to London and voted against the, gov voted against the government. But that's another one. Uh, Walter Harrison, the amazing Deputy Chief Whip for the Labour Party. Walter Harrison, one of the best chief Deputy Chief Whips we ever had. Serving under uh, Bob Mellish and then um, Michael Cox. Fame um, obviously Michael Foote was in the Whips. Obviously. They were called Footnit, Dormant, Harassment and Cock-Up. Uh, after Michael Foote, Jack Dormant, Walter Harrison, and Michael Cox. Which I, I love that, the Fix It for. But there's an anecdote about those two. And uh, Bernard Weatherhill, who was the Deputy Chief Whip in the Conservative Party, and uh, was uh, Humphrey Atkins' deputy, and was, of course, later to become Speaker of the House under Thatcher. Now, there'd always been an arrangement in the House of Commons, still is to this day, the pairing rule. That if there's an MP who is sick or at death's door, then a Tory MP, the, the, another MP, basically goes away. So if there's a Labour MP at death's door or sick, a Tory MP goes away. And if it's the other way around, you know, Labour MP goes away. Now, the Tories had abolished pairing in 1977. They reinstated it in 1980. But they abolished it in 1977 because we cheated on a vote to renationalise the shipping industry and the airlines. Do you remember that one where we counted an MP twice and we, we basically wouldn't by cheating them? Michael Heisel time with the, the mace started spinning it around and going, let's interview people, etc. Uh, that one where basically, well, we didn't cheat. We didn't cheat, but the, the, yeah, fine. Uh, they abolished pairing, though famously, Walter Harrison went to Jack, uh, sorry, Jack Weatherhill's Hill's office and basically said, we're fucked. We are fucked. Yeah. We are not. We we're gonna lose, and we need to bring up pairing. And Walter and Jack Bethel, where they all goes, we can't. What, what do you mean? A pair? We're not gonna have a Tory pair on a, on a vote of confidence against the government. And he goes, no, no, no listen. We've always had a. Remember, there's no rule. It's a, it's a tradition. It's a gentleman's agreement. This is why you need more gentlemen in Parliament, not idiots. But humbug. That, that that's around for another day. And um. 
So, a Walter Harris single is a burden by the hell, because you can't find one to pair. And it wasn't, look, we've always had this rule, that when an MP is sick, or a death store, we take one of yours out, and we take one of ours out. And Do well, Dr. Broughton is at death's door, right? And Ben of Hill goes, well, I do agree with you, Walter, we've always had this gentleman agreement, but I can't find anybody, but I won't vote tonight. That was the Deputy Chief Whip of the Conservative Party offering not to vote with the government, with the opposition, in a vote of no confidence in Her Majesty's government. Mm. That is political suicide. But that's an honour run. Obviously, Walter Harrison goes, no, 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 I can't ask you to do that. That's, that's mental, that's mental. And famously, uh, Walter Harrison goes to Jack, uh, Ben Weatherhill, don't you tell anybody about this. I don't need people thinking I'm soft. And he walked off. Um, but they were good friends. They were friends until 1987. Until basically, to, I think, until they went to, what Harrison left Parliament. They were still very good friends. Amazing colleagues. It was like mm. Robert Byrd and Howard Baker. Phenomenal uh, people, <laughs> Weatherhill and Harrison. Um, so, yeah. And famously, of course, he didn't tell Ben Donoghue who was number 10 chief of staff, because I suspect they probably would have taken Jack's offer. Because at the end of the day, what was the vote? Eyes to the right, 311. Nose to the left, 310. Yeah. Let's just play that. Let's play that as well. <laughs> actually, I'll play the Ben Weather Hill anecdote, actually, because they took out the swearing, but they can put... I'll give you the anecdote. This is, of course, with now him in the Lords. as well. Lord Weather Hill. Walter Harrison. Aye, but it was... It was too late. I went to my opposite number... Walter Harrison, with whom I always had a very close and honourable arrangement, uh, and said to him, uh, well, Walter, I'm afraid this is it. You've had it tonight. Not at all, he said. I said, well, you've lost Frank McGuire. No, but he said, we've got Dr. Broughton. I said, well, he, you can't bring him in. I said, He's, you haven't got time to bring him in anyway. It's seven o'clock and he won't be here in time. But he said, uh, I am now formally asking you to honour your word. I said, well, that's your about. He said, well, we've always had an agreement to pair sick with sick. Uh, and I'm formally asking for a pair uh, to cover Dr. Broughton. I said, but Walter, I, I haven't got a pair. I'm motion, no confidence. Uh, I said, he said, nevertheless, he said, uh, I am formally asking you to uh, honor your word on this. And I said, well, Walter, I must tell you that I agree we've always had this gentleman's agreement, but I haven't got a pair. But I will keep my word. And uh, I shall stand out tonight. I won't vote. Well, Walter then said to me, uh, I'm not going to put you in that position. Uh, I've got to tell you, Walter had not told us that that offer was on, because I think uh, uh, we might have accepted. I mean, that was a huge... Uh, there's the anecdote for you. Now here is the House of Commons uh, tellers announcing that the government had been defeated on the vote of confidence. We might do a part one, part two, to be honest. Yeah, very good. The tellers will stand alternately, uh, side by side, uh, together. So while we wait for all that to happen, and now the tellers are with us, and the Conservative tellers are standing on the right. And therefore, it is quite clear that the government have been defeated, the government have been defeated, and the Conservatives have won. Order. 
Go. Um, not for a bit, but I can I can probably go to about twenty two. So what we can do, um, foot and Kimmich maybe. Mm. I see. Well, let's do foot. Let's do foot. We'll get done by about twenty to eight, and then next week we're gonna do the eights. So in the week after that, we'll do uh, Kinnock, uh, John Smith. Yeah. Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband, Jeremy Carvin. That's a good plan, yeah, because then we can have modern and an old try. Because Michael, Michael Potts really the turning point, isn't it? Correct. Neil Kinnick's the turning point, isn't he? Correct. For the low party stuff. Okay, yeah. Oh, why do Michael Foot? Shit, I know, answer. It's your other idea. See what you do, Michael Foot. I see your Michael Foot, okay. Yeah. Okay, so Michael Foot surprisingly defeated Dennis Teeley. Um, why was this the case? Was there any policy that Labour Party, Labour Party, you know, members latched onto, yeah. and they believed in Michael Foot more than uh, Dennis Healy? Well, let's put this into context, shall we? So the Labour Party, after losing the 1979 general election, Thatcher winning 389 seats, Labour 269, etc., decide the reason they lost the election was because the Labour Party not been left wing enough. See, notice the trend, and. Um, so then they have the whole debate on mandatory reselection, the Electoral College, and they passed the Electoral College in the Wem- in the nineteen eighty conference, Blackpool. So Jim Callahan decides to resign. They get the new government and Michael Foote versus Dennis Healy. Now initially Michael Foote wanted Peter Shaw to be the leader of the, of the, of the Labour Party. He was a raving left winger who was against the EEC and all things like this. And very good Peter Shaw. So in the right, we're obviously going to go for Dennis Healy, the Chancellor under Jim Callaghan. So Dennis Healy runs, truly, one of the shittest campaigns in history. He doesn't call... I mean, famously, I don't know whether that might... There's an MP, whose name escaped me, it was Labour, Johnny SDP, 
said to Dennis Healy, uh, why don't, why are you not called the moderates? We, we're your friends, we've helped you, because at the end of the day, it's the middle ground in the PLP that matters. You don't matter at all. You're going to vote for me if I'm the only candidate. So what do you matter? I'm causing the middle ground here, you thick bastard. And he called him a thick bastard to his face. I mean, this is the man, Dennis Healy, who in 1976, when there were people shouting, they did a, 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 a cut in spending, and Labour was shouting at him, what was it, uh, you Stalinist bastard or something like that. And, um... Dennis Healy turns around and goes, you fuckers, you're out of your tiny little fucking Chinese mind. Uh, obviously referring to Mao Zedong. So, that's Dennis Healy for you. Uh, famous, the same Dennis Healy famously, uh, when the government were ahead by one vote, went up and down the, the lobbying corridors, swearing in the most disgusting language at Labour MPs and dragging Labour MPs through the lobby. Going, get in the lobby, you twats. Look like this. So, But Dennis Healy was still Britain's most popular politician because for the same reason that Jim Callaghan was, he was extremely good at being competent. You... You, you yeah. couldn't dismiss his competence. He could imp he didn't dilly-dally. He didn't, you know, discuss. He said, right, these are our objectives for the social services. These are our objectives for the PSBR. These are our objectives for health. And we will do them. Famously, he worked 19 yeah. hours a day. I mean, he always had fried breakfasts in the morning and fried dinners in the evening. But he worked 19 hour days and he worked extremely hard. He was very intelligent. And Michael Foote was seen, and Dennis Healy was seen by many, um... As, like a, as a dividing force, not a uniting force. And Michael Foote was seen by many as, as a uniting force. Um, I'll play actually what Dennis Healy says about this election. It's quite funny, actually. Because Dennis Healy, actually, as we know, is a very funny person. What, where is he? Where is he? Oh, for God's sake. Uh, right, cast into the wilderness, labour... Uh, where is he? Wait, basically, 1980 election. Idiots and their own stupidity. Yes, I agree. Yes, yes, you're quite right. I'll bear that in mind. Yes, I'll... That's Joe Ashton. Uh, That's not Dennis Healy. And I think that was, um, making the most dreadful language at his colleagues. I think I didn't perhaps cultivate people as much as I should. And I think the best remark about this element in my personality was uh, Roy Hattersley, who was a very loyal supporter, said once of me, he bites your legs. Given the mood of the time. <laughs> Middle of the road. The basic thing was there were a lot of middle of the road backbench MP. This is Dennis Healy. Oh, shit. Things up of the road back the basic thing was there were a lot of middle of the road backbench MPs who wanted a quiet life and thought I would stir things up and of course the last thing they got was a quiet life they had the most disturbed period and of course a lot of them lost their seats in consequence of their stupidity but still that's life too now who could say that in politics nowadays <laughs> That's a consequence of their own stupidity. I love him. I love him so much. Why did they lose? Well, they were too stupid to vote for me, the stupid idiots. Ah. Uh, actually, yeah, let me just put on the, um, 
exchange he had with the left wingers back in 1976. Dennis Healy, uh, was it the Michael Cockrell documentary? Dennis Healy, Dennis Healy, Dennis Healy. Over 20 minutes, come on. Yeah, yeah, the best promise to Labour never had. Is he the best promise to Labour never had? No, I'd say John Smith was, but I'd say Dennis Healy definitely comes second on the list. Uh, yes, yes, that's it, that's it. James a compliment. And just that one of them... Using Dennis. Dennis had this amazing row with left-wing MPs. I was... Lost his temper in the conversation because of a fight. This explains why Dennis Healy could not stand... Didn't win the 1976 leadership election. The night. Yeah. He'd lost his temper in the Commons in a blazing row with left-wing MPs. I was up in the press gallery, and the Labour left had revolted. Dennis was abusing them, and they were abusing Dennis. Dennis had this amazingly combative temperament, you know. Who else is in the bar? I'll take you all on in one go. I think what happened is that one of them cast doubt on my fraternity, so I praised his virility, but it got into the press, uh, this exchange of compliments. What actually happened was that the left-wing MPs called Healy a Stalinist bastard. And Healy yelled at them, you F-worders, you're out of your tiny Chinese minds. You had some very harsh words for your party's left wing last week and were in turn called a barroom brawler. Doesn't all this damage your chances a great deal with the left? Well, we, we have a very turbulent and boisterous love life in the Labour Party, you know, and these hard words get exchanged from time to time and the bruises wear off quite quickly. Not I. I love that. I love that guy so much. You fuckers shouting at him. This is one of the few. This is one of the few disadvantages of the televisation of Parliament, because if Quasi Quartek had shouted back, "You fuckers, you know, you tiny little Judas guides," you would have been sacked. <laughs> but Dennis Healy, you know, famously is known for being offensive. I mean, famously, um. When he was debating Geoffrey Howe, Thatcher's Chancellor, he said, being attacked by the Chancellor Chancellor is, is like being savaged by a dead sheep. <laughs> He's the master of insulting people. But he was a very, very brilliant Chancellor. Um, only to Gordon Brown. Was only better than Dennis Healy, in my view, was Gordon Brown. But Healy was a genius. Now, that's why he won. But also remember, Michael Foote had been an amazing Deputy Prime Minister to Jim Callaghan. You know, Jim Callaghan was naturally a centrist, he was a social democrat, and Michael Foote had basically believed that Marx and, you know, these people were fantastic chaps. Um, and Foote was a socialist, and a proud socialist. Um, yeah. But And a very well-read socialist, may I add, famously going on firing line with William F. Buckley Jr. and debating socialism in a very intelligent way. But, so he was seen as a unifier. There you go. Uh, okay, so, so, um, so Michael Foot, um, 24 MPs left him for the SDP. One minute, minute. let me find something. When he talks about the salvation of the, the country. In these past four years to contend with, and nobody can say that the... But of course, all that she wants to be wiped away... 
the years of the uh, uh, previous conservative government between 70 and 74, she was also seeking a real deep gulf and breach times. So what will happen? What will have, what will once again be the choice at the next election? This is Michael Foote uh, summarising the debate for the government in the House of Commons in the 1979 vote of no confidence. Happen. What will have, what will once again be the choice at the next election is not so dissimilar from the choice this country had to make in 1945 or even if I may say in 1940 when a Labour Party had to come to the rescue of the country then. of the Labour Party in this House of Commons that we threw out the Chamberlain government in 1940. It was thanks to the Labour Party that Churchill ever got a chance to serve the country in the war years, thanks to the Labour Party. Two-thirds of the Conservative Party of that time voted for the same reactionary policies that some of them they vote for tonight. And it was in, and it is in the most difficult and painful moments of our history sometimes that this country of ours has turned to the Labour Party for salvation and they've never turned in vain so far. We saved the country in 1940. We saved the country again in 1945. We set out to rescue the country from what we been left of it in 1974 and here again in 1979. We shall do the same. I know that I love that so much because it wound them all the Tories up so much. <laughs> we saved you the, in 1940 when the Labour Party had to save the country then. And the were outrageous. Oh no. <laughs> but no, Foot was an absolutely fantastic parliamentary debater. I'd say him and Tony Blair, maybe even John Smith, are three of the best parliamentary debaters the Labour Party's ever been gifted with. John Smith, Michael Foot, and sorry, Michael Foot, then John Smith and Tony Blair. Yeah. Now, that's the question about the SDP. Why did the Labour Party leave? Why did the SDP leave the Labour Party? That was because of mandatory reselection. Basically, the Labour Party came up with a rule that every MP would have to be reselected every five years. Now, constituency of the Labour Party is a very left wing, as we know. That's good, because they're the ground troops for our party. They put out the leaflets, they do the door knocking, and we are very part of the Labour Party. But for people like David Owen, Bill Rogers, Shirley Williams, Roy Jenkins, who are not uh, left wingers by any means of the word, they found it very worrying. Oh, they were worried by that. They would say, ah, we're going to lose our seats. We're going to lose our seats. So we're now going to fuck off and join the SDP. And then, of course... The Electoral College was brought in, where Labour Party used to have it selected by MPs only, then had it with one-third with the unions, one-third with the uh, uh, CLP, 34% with the MPs. Yeah. Right. So, well, it um, wasn't. It was 40 for the unions, 30 for the CLP, 30 for the MPs. It was 33, 33, 34 when uh, John Smith did one member, one vote. Yeah. So, where the... Um, um, he supported the Falklands War pretty much immediately. Yeah. Um, now, was that a mistake? Because the left of the party certainly yeah. thought it was a mistake. 
It was not a mistake. You do sup you the fuck was it is it it was Scoop Jackson, the great Henry Jackson, who said where there is uh where there is foreign policy, please God let there be no politics. Arthur Vandenberg, the man who said partisanship stops at the water's edge. Foreign policy is the one place you do not be partisan on. Domestic affairs, we can go after the Tories on their savaging of the health service, the savaging of the schools, the destruction of the welfare state, right that we do. But on foreign policy, we, we, we support the government. We can't be divided. So he was right. Especially after Argentinians had invaded British territory. Yeah. It's an okay. act of aggression. You don't then say, oh, we must find some peace. No, you take that territory back and you win it. And then you say, fuck off to your enemy. I agree. And, 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 and I will not praise Margaret Thatcher for much. I said six minutes just being rude about Margaret Thatcher. But on the Falklands, it was a masterstroke. Masterstroke. I agree. Yeah. So he was right. Yeah. So, um, and the last question of Michael, I thought I'd have a good podcast yeah. for today, until part two, until part which two, comes yeah. next week. Yeah. Why did the Labour collapse in 1983? And was... He the worst leader the Labour Party ever had. Yes, he was. Look, my, this is my honestly on Michael Foot. Michael Foot is a gentleman. Michael Foot is an amazing literary reader. He's an amazing writer. He's an amazing discusser of books and ideas. He was an amazing employment minister and an amazing deputy prime minister. Deputy prime minister under Jim Callaghan. He was a shit leader of the Labour Party. He was. He caused a split in the party. The, S, the Labour Party, everyone forgets how bad 83 was. We got 27%. The Tories got 43. We got 27. The SDP got 25. We need, You had the Bermondsey by-election, for fuck's sake, where we had a 12,000 majority, and that got overturned to a Liberal 12,000 majority. The Liberals, who got... Third place in Bermondsey 1979 with 2,000 votes went to 17,000 votes. And we went from 17 to 7,000 votes. Mike, right, here's the best way of doing it. In December 1981, Michael Foote, Labour were polling at 56%, Tories 23, Liberals 25, something like that. Could be a bit lower, could be a bit higher. Right? Sorry, that was December 1980. By December 1981, the Liberal SDP alliance were on 50%. The Labour Party on a bit less, Tories on 20, or about 24, sorry, 24, Tories 23. Yeah. We could have won, we could have, the, the reason we lost in 83, threefold. That manifesto, 93 manifesto, which was a stupid manifesto. Nationalising Britain's 100 biggest companies? Fuck off. Union actual nuclear disarmament? What? Say what? You want to withdraw your nuclear weapons when other countries have them? Give me a fucking break. What a stupid idea that is. You know, raising taxes back to 98%. You will create no jobs. It was a stupid manifesto. It was a stupid document. You know, Gerald Kaufman, Labour MP, said it was the longest suicide note in history. It's actually the shortest, because it was the shortest manifesto we ever written. But it was a shit manifesto. And we can't, you know, we got down to 209 seats. We had so many people, you know, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown say that there were people who were furious with us. You know, everyone says 2019 was the worst election. 
No, 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 no. 83. Because 19, you had affluence, you had growth, you had a budget surplus, unemployment at a 40 year low. 1983, unemployment at 3 million. You had no growth in the economy. Poverty was going through the roof. The schools and hospitals were declining. And the Labour Party had spent 24 months talking about fucking mandatory reselection. And then, and then, if vanity wasn't enough, Tony Benn decides in April 91, I'm going to run for the deputy leadership of the Labour Party. Now, I'm very fond of Tony Benn. I am. But what? Margaret Thatcher's closing the miners, she's putting prescription charges, she's doing horrendous things to the National Health Service, there's rioting in Toxtep, and your big concern is, who's going to be the deputy leader? For fuck's sake! Oh, God, no! Thing is, we had, in 1979, 269 MPs. And people yeah. say, oh, Dennis Healy couldn't have won us the election. Do you know what? Yes, he could have. Because they wouldn't have, we would not have had the division on the Falklands. We would not have been seeing weakened defence. We'd have had a sensible fiscal policy. And Margaret Thatcher would have been, in the words of Ronald Reagan, consigned to the ash heap of history. So there you go. That's why we lost. We lost because of the SDP. We lost because of that stupid manifesto. And we lost because Michael Foote, though an amazing person, and he is an amazing person, he was blind in one eye in 1976, almost the rest of his life, was not a leader. He was a deputy. He was a policy thinker, but he couldn't lead. Mm. Now, on that note, we bring to an end this marathon first half of the podcast. We could go on, but I suspect it'd be a four-hour episode, not a two-hour episode. This is part one. <laughs> we will do part two. Now, we will either do part two on Tuesday or next, or this time next week, on Sunday, or Tuesday or Sunday, we will record, and because the prep is already done, you see, so all we'll have to do is just quickly pick up from where we left off um yeah. and we will do obviously then we'll do neil kinnock we'll do john smith we'll do tony blair we'll do gordon brown ed Miliband, jeremy corbyn so yeah. until then we will see you next year next sunday until then take care Bye.